0: Hello and welcome to the MTP Connect podcast. I'm Stuart Dignam and today we're taking a stroll down medical alley and all will become clear if you stay with us. We're going to be talking about the market in the United States and opportunities in that uh, incredibly important market for Australia's MTP sector. And joining us for this stroll is Frank Jaskolke, who is the VP of Intelligence at the Medical Alley Association in Minnesota and we're also joined by Dr. Alfredo Martinez Cole from MTP Connect. Hello to you both. Hello. Let's get going, shall we? Um mm-hmm. Frank, tell us about uh the Medical Alley Association in Minnesota. What do you do?
1: Yeah. So Medical Alley Associations a trade group in Minnesota. For the healthcare and health technology companies in the state. So think of Medtronic, Mayo Clinic, United Health Group, and hundreds of small and medium sized companies. Our work fundamentally is in three areas we work in public policy and influence, we provide insights and intelligence, and we make connections to advance their business. And all of that work ultimately is to see these companies grow and be more successful so they can help more patients around the world to live healthy long, healthy and long lives.
0: So those are some pretty big names you just mentioned. It's clearly a, um, a cluster of some mm-hmm. importance.
1: We've been fortunate that with uh, the start of Medtronic about 60 years ago and the start of Mayo Clinic about 150 years ago, that the Medical Alley region has grown into one of the global epicenters of health innovation and care. So, we're home to about 500,000 people who work broadly in healthcare and health technology, uh, the global leaders that you would know, and then an increasing number of these small emerging companies that are developing new technologies in biotech and medical device and digital health.
0: And clearly a focus for Australia, and I'll bring Alfredo in here because uh, MTP Connect has a, a memorandum of understanding with Medical Alley, and that's important for the sector, Alfredo.
2: Oh, absolutely. So we're trying to develop activities and events that add value to the MTP sector companies, our stakeholders, and Medical Alley is an integral part of that as they are a very significant group in the U.S. and would provide those connections, those key connections for U.S. market access, for investors, for, you know, doing uh, corporate introductions to the big companies. So those are the things that most of Australian companies, you know, struggle with. So this is a great opportunity for us to work with uh, Medical Alley.
0: And you're in Australia. You've uh, attended some events with the BioMelbourne Network. Mm-hmm. What is the, uh, the purpose of your visit?
1: So this is the fifth year that we've been working um, in, in, uh, in Australia, particularly with BioMelbourne Network, and the focus has been uh, helping Australian health technology companies that are looking at entering the U.S. market. To find potential partners, to find advice, to get insights so they can better tune their business to be successful. And we had an event just the other day where we were talking about reimbursement and this incredibly critical issue in the US market that because we operate in a for profit and a private healthcare system without the Much of the public or socialized option like most of the rest of the world has is an area that a a lot of companies in Australia overlook or don't quite understand because it's so fundamentally different. So we've been focused on how do we help the companies understand that difference and better address the market to bring their life-saving innovations to help patients in the United States.
0: What's the top three tips that you would give
1: you know, the, the first thing I always say is validate that there is actually a market in the U.S. The fact that you might have a market in Australia or even the rest of the world is not does not mean that you have a market in the United States. Um, there's very different payment models, very different conditions, a very different way of buying products. So before you go too far down the line, validate there's a market. Second thing, if you validated that there is a market fundamentally understand the reimbursement pathway. I think a lot of companies get hung up on the idea of dealing with the FDA and the FDA has its own challenges, but FDA simply gives you the ability to sell a product. It does not mean anyone will buy your product and a fundamental driver of that is the reimbursement pathway, which is different if your product is going into the aged care market or into the private commercial market, if it's going into the self-insured market, Um, understanding that is the difference between a company having success and falling flat. And then I think the third thing is, is don't forget how expensive it is to fully address the market. A lot of times companies are thinking about, I want to launch in the U.S., No one launches in the U.S. You launch in some part of the U.S. Think about limited market release targeting certain specific geographies where there's high prevalence in incidents or there's critical physicians and hospitals that you can go into and kind of land and expand. You may start in Chicago, say there were a good market there build up a business in that area, and then expand into another market and another market and another market, and that's the strategy even U.S. companies take. It's estimated that to launch a medical device fully across the U.S. costs about $100 million just to start, and then there's the ongoing cost. So, you know, I'd say it's validate that there is a market, determine if you have a reimbursement pathway and then pick where you're going to launch within the U.S., not launching in the entirety of the U.S.
0: Alfredo, you've had experience living and working and educating in the United States. How does how does that advice accord with your experiences with stakeholders in Australia?
2: Oh, I think it's spot on. I mean, one of the biggest issues, as uh, Frank mentioned, is the distinction between getting FDA approval to sell a device and getting reimbursement in order to be able to make money out of the device that you're putting into market. Um, people tend to focus on FDA approval and sort of leave reimbursement for a later date, and you can't do that. you got to start very, very early on to looking at your reimbursement strategy. And depending on which region in the U.S. you're planning to sell, you got to have that clear because reimbursement for a particular device in the Boston, New York area would be completely different than in the California system. So you got to know where you're going.
1: And, and I want to emphasize one thing he just said about starting early, it, it is too late to start if you've already fully designed your product, you're in manufacturing, and you have product approval for it. Figuring out that reimbursement path should be something you do extremely early on in the development because you may need to adjust the product. But even more importantly, the type of approval or clearance you get from the FDA can alter the type of reimbursement you qualify for. And I've seen plenty of companies in the US and all around the world that go straight into the FDA process, get to market, only to find out that the approval they have prevents them from getting the kind of reimbursement that they need to truly be a viable
0: company. So when you're talking to Australian stakeholders, is this like a reality check or is this this something that perhaps they have a bit of an idea about or is this a, is this you know not what they want to hear
1: it's increasingly becoming something companies are recognizing here um it, 2 3 years ago when i would talk to companies in australia and to be fair even companies in the us would mess this up they weren't thinking about reimbursement they were very focused on get to fda that was the milestone there's a growing recognition of the importance of reimbursement. And I, I have to give a lot of credit to the work that MTP's done, that BioMelbourne's done, and that the other associations in Australia have done to raise this issue and help companies to understand how important it is.
0: So we all appreciate the the rise and rise of opportunities in Asia, but I would imagine that the United States is still a, a desired market. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about potentially global products. So it's not just Australian innovators that are eyeing off the United States, it's from every country. So, talk about that sort of co- competitiveness to, to get products into the United States.
1: You know, the the U.S. market is extremely competitive. It works out to about 40% of global health technology sales are the U.S. So it's a a highly profitable, highly lucrative market, which means companies from all over the world are trying to bring solutions in. It also means if you're developing a solution, that you likely have a dozen competitors, even if you don't know they exist. Um, And that can be a big challenge when coming in, of figuring out how do you differentiate yourself in that market. If a hospital has 10 options for fundamentally the same therapy or the same diagnostic, why are they going to pick yours over the other nine? And I think not enough companies around the world take the time to really do that competitive analysis and figure out, how do they stand out in that crowd of other companies to get their product bought over someone else's? Well,
0: we're very pleased you've come to Australia, Frank, and pleased that you've partnered with us at MTP Connect. Don't go to Germany. Don't go to Canada. Just <laughs> just stay coming to Australia. The Mentec Conference, which is one of the um, uh, signature conferences that that's held in the year, it's in the United States. Is this, is Alfredo, is this an opportunity for Australian um, MTP players to get a better appreciation of some of these issues that Frank's talking about?
2: Absolutely. And um, some of the um, stakeholders in Australia would be familiar with the Bio International Conference. So that's the largest met, um, medical sort of pharmaceutical partnering conference in the world. Um, the MedTech Conference is a conference that is run by the Advamed um, Industry Association. And it is the largest medical device conference in the world for partnering, right? It's not the same size of uh, bio, but it's significant because all the key executives of the large medtech companies stay there for the whole of the conference. And having partners such as Medical Alley is absolutely vital for those connections, those introductions. It's very difficult for a small uh, Australian company to fly halfway around the world and try to talk in front of Medtronic or Johnson & Johnson. Uh, through our partnerships with Medical Alley, that can be facilitated. And that's one of the greatest benefits of being part of the delegations that we normally plan for the MedTech conference.
0: Which is coming up, of course, and, and we'll have lots more to say about that on our website and through our usual channels, so stay tuned. What should a company contemplate doing if they go to the MedTech conference? You know, they land they land in, um, is it is it Philadelphia or is it Boston yeah. this year? Boston this year. If they land that's in great. Boston, what should they do?
1: Well, so Frank, why don't you go first? I think the the first thing to do is ahead of the conference, use the partnering system. It's simple and easy to use. You can look up who's attending, reach out to them and arrange meetings. I've been doing this for a couple of years, and it's a fantastic reception. As Alfredo said, the key executives from the major medtech companies around the world are there, and they're there looking for opportunity. They're looking for deals, So reach out to them, give them your information, give them your pitch, and try to arrange meetings. When you get there, uh, take the time to go to some of the sessions, do the networking. They truly are, the executives truly are walking around the exhibit floor, going to the conferences. It's very easy to go out and find the different people you'd want to connect with to start building that relationship and potentially create a new partnership and a new opportunity in the U.S.
2: So I guess the other point to make is you need to do a bit of homework before you get there, right? And that homework is is not just requesting to meet with the vice president of uh, global business development from J&J. You need to understand exactly what J&J is looking for and how your product or service fits into that criteria and the value proposition. So we go back to something that Frank mentioned before. How does your product differentiate from all the other potential competitors out there? You need to ver- to have a very clear value proposition that you can uh, present. And then you go through the partnering system and request those meetings and have an understanding of what the company is already developing, have a, an understanding of their products. And uh, that way you can address the fact that this will fit in perfectly with your strategy around blah. Yeah, I want to echo something in that, that, the
1: importance of being other-centered when you're doing this work. Founders quite often are extremely passionate about the work they're doing, about their innovation, and rightly so. That passion is what drives them forward. J&J doesn't care about your passion. Medtronic doesn't care about your passion. They have a strategy that they're trying to execute. You need to take the time to figure out what is their strategy, And how can your product or your service help them execute that strategy better and give them a competitive advantage? I I see far too often from companies in the U.S., companies around the world, who they assume because they have a device that's treating a heart condition that Medtronic or J&J or Boston Scientific will be interested in it. But if it doesn't fit in Medtronic's strategy to go to market, They're not going to rewrite their strategy to accommodate your product. So Mm -hmm. doing that homework to understand what is it that they're trying to accomplish and then figuring out how you fit in that will dramatically increase your chances of being successful in getting the meetings, talking about the partnerships and ultimately forming some sort of partnership.
0: Well, let's go one step further. Let's assume you've done your homework and you've actually made a connection um, at, at, at the conference, T- tell us about forming partnerships, and what are the what are the pitfalls, the potential pitfalls in forming a partnership or a corporate partnership to to go even further.
1: Yeah, I think one of the pitfalls is not starting early enough in building the relationship. You know, a complicated partnership between a, a new venture and a large global company is not one conversation. It's often a a multi-year effort of conversations, of identifying the sorts of things that the company needs to see, the milestones that need to be hit for them to say yes to a deal, and then executing on those milestones, reporting back, finding out if their strategy has changed, and being able to connect. So I think a big pitfall is just not starting the dialogue early enough to be able to adjust your strategy to fit into theirs.
2: And I think that to to add to that, starting the dialogue early is very important, but also building trust. Mm-hmm. It's not just, I want to be able to sell my technology to you, so, you know, please help me be more successful. You need to develop that partnership, that relationship. And as Frank says, it's a multi-year sort of investment in your part. But it's truly a, a partnership. It's a two way street. What can we bring to you? What can you bring to us? So if you go with that mindset of this is not a one off transaction, this is a long term partnership that I'm hoping to establish with one of these companies, then that's the right frame of mind. And it will take multiple, you know, meetings and multiple engagements and, you know, um sort of networking to maintain that, that relationship. You know, trust
1: is such an important thing. Ultimately, when a company, whether it's big or small, is doing some sort of partnership, they may sign an agreement, there may be evidence, but it comes down to two people being able to say, yeah, I trust that you're going to follow through on the things you've promised, and you can trust that I'm going to follow through. So building that trust where the other companies are willing to take some risk to say, I don't know where this is going to end up, but I'm willing to go along. And that journey is so important. And I I can't emphasize it enough that all the evidence in the world won't overcome if they don't believe that you can deliver on the promises of that technology of that market.
0: I'm going to circle back now to your um, job title, Frank, Mm -hmm. VP Intelligence. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the best job titles I've ever seen. (laughs) Thank you. What are are the trends or the mega trends that you're seeing emerging in in your travels and your experiences at Medical Alley?
1: You know, I think in the U.S. context, the biggest trend we're seeing right now is the shift to value-based care. Um, The U.S. healthcare system historically has been what's called fee-for-service. A physician does work and receives payment for that unit of work. That is a tendency to encourage more activity to be done, but it also tends not to encourage tracking the outcomes of what is done. So there's this push to go to a value-based system and this idea of value being equal to outcomes divided by the cost. So if you can increase the outcome, you have a potential for success. If you can lower the cost, you have potential for success. If you can do both... You have a potential blockbuster, and that's being driven by a, a mega trend all over the world, but acute in the United States, which is just healthcare is increasingly expensive. It's the difference between being able to pay bills and not pay bills increasingly. So if, if a company is bringing something to the market and they can't demonstrate that it will dramatically increase outcomes and or dramatically lower cost, it struggles to find success.
0: And Alfredo, do you think that Australian MTP players are, are recognising and adapting to this mega trend, which is obviously happening here as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a big shift towards precision medicine is one, one key example. So we're moving away from volume to value. So it's definitely something that's in the cards. And it's something that, from the regulatory point of view, presents massive challenges as well, because the system had not been designed For you know, personalized, you know, individualized kind of therapies and medicines and devices. So yeah, it's a big issue.
0: And would that be the same in the U.S. as well, Frank?
2: Yeah, it's increasingly a challenge. And you know,
1: I'd I'd highlight the work uh, the U.S. FDA is doing in the digital health area, where you might have AI-based software that what it does for me versus what it does for Alfredo could be very different. And regulatory schemas around the world aren't built to accommodate that. They want to design a thing one way, freeze it, and then deploy it across the population. So FDA is increasingly doing work where instead of validating the specific product output, they're validating the process to get to that output and saying if, if you do the inputs correctly, that will be an acceptable form of output that results from it. But it's, it's new a lot of companies haven't dealt with it yet. We're all still trying to figure out how do we get to this place. I think we agree it's the right place to get to, but we don't know how to get there yet.
0: And talk more about digital health. Where where are we at with digital health?
1: Yeah. A digital health, I think, is the thing that all of a sudden every company is a digital health company. You know, throw some software, some blockchain, some crypto on it, and you have a giant valuation. The, the question I always have and that increasingly our member companies have is, what does it actually do? What is the benefit to the hospital, the insurance company, the patient that we really care about that comes as a result? Companies that are able to show that benefit are having great success. On the other side, because it's so easy to start and get going, software can be so cheap to develop that there's just a lot of noise in the system. So we're, we're hearing from our companies that they want to see digital health. They want to see software that enables remote monitoring and virtual medicine and personalized experiences, but they also want proof. They, they want level one evidence. They want clinical trials. They want to know that if they do this, it's not just hype. It has an actual output that matters to the stakeholders in healthcare.
0: So... If- Presumably, if we move down that uh, track that you've just outlined, it's going to be massive if it's not already.
1: Yeah, the the opportunity in digital health truly is gigantic. Um, I think on one level, it's taking waste out. There's a lot of value that can be created not by actually improving the treatment for a patient, but by making the process quicker, cheaper, more repeatable. You know, the, these efficiency gains in healthcare. the potential is tremendous. Second big area, there's a lot of opportunity for remote monitoring. Uh, in the U.S. and in Australia, we have large physical areas that are rural where you don't have as many hospitals, as many doctors. So how do you provide care? This is where telemedicine has already been adopted in both countries quite extensively. We're starting to see telemedicine now used in the urban areas to provide more convenient care and a lower cost of care. It's not all that complex. You could do a, a FaceTime call and do a virtual medicine, a telemedicine visit, but the impact can be quite significant. So yeah, the, the opportunity is truly tremendous. But again, companies need to prove that the claims they're making really happen, that you're getting the outputs that you say are going to
2: come from it.
0: And the Australian experience?
2: Uh, the Australian experience is uh, no different than that, and, and particularly in Australia because of our geography. Um, it's a significant issue here, but the other uh, component to that is the data, right? The health data. So that on its own it's, a, it's another kettle of fish, and, and, and it brings in huge opportunities, but also massive challenges as well. How do you deal with the increasing amount of health data that's available? How do you anonymize that? How do you share that? How are you able to extract value out of that? And whether people have the ability to say, I don't want my data to be used, and we're going through that with My Health Record in Australia. Um, And also, um, how do you keep that data secure and safe, right? Um, Cybersecurity concerns and data security and integrity issues. So, um, many of the hospitals in the U.S. are dealing with this on an active basis, and, and it's a big opportunity, but it's a big challenge as well. Mm.
0: So this is not a digital health issue. This is a big data issue that underpins not just this sector but, but, but many sectors. Same, same controversy in the United States around you know, sharing of protection of data?
1: Very much so. I, I think the thing that always strikes me is if your credit card number word gets stolen, that's worth about a dollar on the so-called dark web. If your health record gets stolen, those are worth about four hundred dollars on the dark web. So the the value of the health data is just tremendous, and there's huge concerns about cybersecurity in the U.S. Yeah, you know, the the IT systems in much of healthcare are older systems, they might be older software. And so there are exploits that are out there and being used right now. Result is lots of liability, lots of concern by the public and lots of investment being made in securing that data. I think the the next issue we're going to see is once you can secure that data, once you can collect it, what can you actually do with it that's impactful. Yeah, Apple just came out with their Apple Watch a Stanford Heart study, and they were able to find out of four hundred and seventy thousand patients, a thousand people who had an arrhythmia during the time. Ninety percent of those patients were asymptomatic, generally healthy people. The question is now, does that actually matter? If you're healthy, low risk, don't have any issues, and you detect an arrhythmia. Does it actually mean there's something wrong with you? Mm. so simply having the data and simply being able to find some signal within the data doesn't tell you you now can do something that will impact health or lower costs
2: and it also brings in you know artificial intelligence which is increasingly being broadly applied to all these health data, these large data sets so artificial intelligence and training tools to make sure that you extract. The value out of that information—that what you're looking at—it's a real signal as opposed to something that is noise or is not relevant. It's a big, big opportunity, but it's also a big issue.
0: And would flow into the the notion of value-based healthcare because if it's the worried well, I suppose, isn't it mm. that, that there really actually isn't anything that's a problem, but you're going to demand services of some sort which are right. expensive, which perhaps were unnecessarily provided.
1: It, that is a real concern of a lot of healthcare providers that as we get access to more of this data and we start seeing things that happen that in the past we haven't detected, we don't really know if that's just a, a normal occurrence of the body or if it's a sign of an actual health issue. And so there is concern about this worried well coming in requiring testing, asking for services, maybe demanding treatment, and the question of benefit versus harm comes in. You know, Anytime you go in to do some sort of testing, you're subjecting yourself to some amount of risk, even if it's infinitesimally small. If you're already healthy and you don't actually have a need for that, is that risk... Too high compared to simply doing nothing, and these are questions we we haven't had to grapple with before. That I think people far smarter than me are going to have to figure out before we end up with all kinds of people coming in demanding services and not actually having a need, pushing out people who truly do need the healthcare services.
0: Fascinating topic, and we could spend hours on it. I suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, before you get back on the plane to Minnesota, uh, uh, really pleased that you're in Australia. is there That's any been great. F- final tips or observations that you'd uh, you'd like to make?
1: You know, I think I just I'd echo the things said already of starting early, validate that there is a market in the U.S., which may be very different from the market you'd find in other parts of the world, um, and don't be afraid to reach out. You'll generally find, especially in the medtech community. The companies are always looking for new opportunities, and even if it's not a fit, they'll want to learn a little bit more and maybe point you in the right direction.
0: Well, it's clear to me that the relationship with the United States is strong, the potential is great, and we're really pleased to be working with uh, the Medical Alley Association. Frank, thanks for coming on to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Really appreciate you taking the time. And thanks, Alfred.
2: Thanks, Stuart.